Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com. To learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. This High Truths podcast is sponsored by NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative. NMI strives to dispel misconceptions about marijuana and raise awareness of the issues surrounding the drug so that citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices regarding marijuana use and regulations. Learn more about NMI at thenmi.org. Hello, everyone. I am once again energized to share another enlightening High Truths conversation with you. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and I want to share with you a list of 10 really bad things industry has done to promote and entice kids to smoke cigarettes, according to the American Lung Association. Ready? Number one, candy and fruit-flavored products. Number two, celebrity endorsements. Number three, misleading health claims. Number four, sweepstakes and contests. Number five, buy one, get one free. Number six, ads in popular magazines. Number seven, product placement and TV in movies. Eight, cartoon characters. Number nine, in-store promotions. And number 10, targeting youth as a critical industry growth factor. Does that sound familiar or what? Do you see big marijuana using the same playbook as big tobacco? It's very sad. And I see the consequences in the emergency department at every shift and patients that I take care of. Every shift, I treat a patient with marijuana poisoning. They have cannabis-induced psychosis, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, cardiovascular complications, and lung complications. I've treated several patients who came in for a possible stroke and it turns out that it was just poisoning from pot. Data from San Diego documents nearly 40 cases of cannabis-related illnesses in the emergency department a day. My patient, I will call Jill, was sent to the emergency department to start medication-assisted treatment for her fentanyl addiction. She was only 26 years old and told me that her journey to drugs started at the age of 14 with marijuana. She then had an injury in high school and got hooked on opiates and quickly graduated to heroin and now fentanyl. She now smokes and injects two grams a day of fentanyl. I talked to Jill about addiction and encouraged her to use her buprenorphine medications not just to help with withdrawal, but also to stay in on it for at least a year to help treat the craving and to train her brain to slowly require less dopamine. Jill has been using drugs for 12 years Her brain will not just bounce back in a week or even a month. It took 12 years to train her brain to need daily fentanyl, and it would take a year or more to normalize. Addiction is a chronic disease, like diabetes. Some people can quit quit eating cake if they have prediabetes and do better, and some people need pills and insulin, and others need an insulin pump for the rest of their life. Jill, like every patient I've treated who overdosed on fentanyl or uses fentanyl, they all started priming their brain with marijuana and graduated to harder drugs. I worry about the tactics of targeting youth with addictive drugs. 
It's good for the tobacco, alcohol, marijuana business, but it also increases the total number of people who suffer from substance use disorder and the 100,000 people a year who die from overdoses. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, my name is Lisa Bridges and I'm a senior program manager with Say San Diego. I've been working in substance use prevention for about 10 years. Our focus is to help communities, youth in particular, become aware of the truth, the dangers that are associated with substance use. You know, Dr. Liv, I am a huge fan of your work and I find your podcast and really any of your presentations to always be on point and very insightful. My question for your subject expert today is, with so much promotion, really glorification of marijuana um, happening in youth pop culture, media, entertainment, music, and social media, what is the best way to reach youth, fifth grade and up, and their parents in preventing use of this drug? You know, so much is focused nowadays on growing um, the enterprise of these businesses. Um, and I get that. But protecting youth from using marijuana is really an uphill climb. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. And I am a fan of your great work as well. You bring up a great point. We're living not just through an era of great commercialization, but of glorification of marijuana, just like you said. And you are right, it can be a definite uphill battle talking about prevention. But don't despair. The majority of kids do not use drugs, according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. So keep up your strong and noble work. And to answer your question, I invited a psychology expert, Dr. Erin Weiner. Dr. Weiner is a board-certified clinical psychologist, addiction specialist, and president-elect of the Society of Addiction Psychology. He speaks nationally on the topics of addiction, behavioral health, and the impact of drug policy on public health. You can find Dr. Aaron Weiner's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Aaron Weiner, welcome to High Truths. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I am really looking forward to this conversation, podcast host to podcast host. <laughs> Incredibly kind. You'd think that would make this maybe like a more witty or responsive conversation, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We're going to see. But I think you have a 360 degree view of addiction as, um, as a psychologist. So I know that we're going to have a great conversation, but let's start with telling us what inspired and guided your current work in addiction. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So initially, I just kind of fell into it, mostly because of my own impatience. When I was in grad school, I wanted to get started on clinical work right away. And the only clinic on campus that would allow me to do that uh, was their alcohol and other drug clinic. But since that time, I've really grown to appreciate the intersection in the addiction world between uh, teaching, which is one of my passions, and therapy, which is, of course, a big part of getting someone through the addiction syndrome to the point that they can manage it effectively. More recently, I developed a passion for public health work and messaging work when I was directing an addiction service line in a hospital in the Chicago area. And I started doing more out in public and realized there is this massive chasm between what we see published in psychological and medical journals about addiction and what the common narratives are out on the street. In the general public. And I realized there was a lot of meaning and good work to do in connecting people with the information that they need, whether it's as a parent or as a teacher, a physician, a behavioral health practitioner, to, to do what they're doing around addiction more effectively. And I, I, I really enjoy it. Interesting. And, um, it, you know, just before getting all, I got a call from a friend, an emergency physician who uh, said that they're doing some prevention work at the school and they wanted some, uh, he wanted some tips of how to reach a 12 and 14 year old. And I, you know, my advice was, you know, as far as talking at that level, as talking about the, the growing brain and protecting your brain and that fentanyl could be anywhere. And so, and people, that was the point of the, the school message. Um, what would you advise? I wonder if I did the, the right message for that age group. Well, I think, I think you got it about right. Uh, there's, so when, I've, when I talk with young people, 
there's a couple different avenues I like to go down. One has to do absolutely with informing them of what the real risks are, because it's true. Right now, fentanyl is everywhere. It's what's driving the overdose epidemic that we're in the middle of right now. There are a lot of reasons to be concerned uh, from using illicit substances, but also even on the licit side in terms of what you can get legally. You know, just because alcohol is legal does not make it safe uh, by, by any stretch of the imagination. And I think the most important thing for young people that we can do right now, particularly at 12, maybe also at 14, is uh, allow, give yourself the opportunity to set the narrative. To, to interpret the world for them. Don't try to shield them from the world because that's not going to work, it's going to find them. But just let them know, hey, so here are the choices you're gonna have to make. And you might hear these things about vaping, about THC products, about alcohol, whatever it is. Uh, but but here, here's what's really going on and foster this identity of someone who wants to create the best life for themselves and to have a healthy mind, have a healthy brain and then hope then that when they're placed in those choice points that they make the decisions that will guide them there. That's great advice. I'll tell uh, Dr. Tom Sugarman, an emergency physician who's uh, doing a presentation for his kids. I'm going to share that with him. Um, Lisa Bridges called into High Truths. She is a prevention specialist and she feels like she's fighting an uphill battle on the glorification of marijuana, especially in pop culture. We see it definitely on TV and movies, advertisements. Um, um, what is your advice uh, to her um, in, in her work in prevention? Yeah, this is a major problem in terms of media portraying drug use in a way that's either normalized, glamorized, or both. The Truth Initiative actually does great research on this, and they put out their 2022 report about, I think, two weeks ago. So hot off the presses if anyone wants to look at that. But looking at how often young people are exposed to uh, for their report, specifically nicotine imagery, which then relates to them starting to use vaping devices, uh, but certainly other substances as well, like marijuana, like alcohol and others. And it's, it's very tricky because a lot of times the shows that are portraying that are actually rated at MA. You know, they're, they're not actually made for kids. Kids find their way to them anyway, but it really just underscores the necessity to, to talk about truth and to actually tell kids what's going on, not necessarily in a fear tactic-y sort of way, because that can seem pushy. And the best way to get pushed back from a teen is to push yourself. And particularly if you're not in, in a parental role where you might have to set boundaries sometimes and impose consequences, not pushing is really important because it'll make your message much more likely to be received. But being able to really help open up the minds of kids to what is the creator of this content? What were they trying to convey with it? Is it meant for kids? Is it trying to show you what's normal? Are these really role models? What are the consequences that you're seeing here? And then if they're not seeing negative consequences from substance use, trying to help them understand, no, they're, they're there, right? Like one that comes to mind is The Queen's Gambit, where in The Queen's Gambit, if uh, a spoiler alert for those who haven't seen this Netflix miniseries, the main character kind of goes in and out of addictive behavior with like no withdrawal, doesn't go to treatment, um, struggles at times, but can just kind of like, you know, snap her fingers and turn it off. And that's, that's really not how it works. And so helping young people understand is really important. Also, she becomes a great chess player, although her brain has been primed with drugs for a long time and it probably, she would not be performing as well as, uh, as is displayed in the, in the movie. Right. It even shows it like uh, using, I think it's in the movie, she uses barbiturates, a type right. of sedative. We don't see those too much these days, but almost like it gives her a superpower to right. hallucinate chess games on her ceiling. Right. That's so misleading. Yeah. Um, so what can uh, Lisa and, and others who work in prevention do about that? I kind of like your, your, your message of like showing the reality and empowering uh, young people of making their own choices, but understanding and hopefully they want to be healthier and, um, and, and protect their bodies. Yeah, well, I, I think, so whenever you're trying to sell someone on anything, healthy or not, the most important part, in my opinion, is finding a convergence ar around a problem. Like you're helping them solve a problem. 
Sometimes they know they have a problem, sometimes they don't, but you want to try to offer a solution. And a lot of times when kids are attracted to substances, they are trying to solve a problem, whether or not it's a social problem, where they're wanting to fit in or not be excluded, or uh, like a psychiatric problem, if they're trying to cope with anxiety, depression, trauma, something like that. And so the, the, the cell is saying, okay, so you've got this one way that either you're using or that might seem appealing. Well, what if there was a better way to get where you want to go? What if there's a way to do it that doesn't necessarily take you down a path that hurts you? And I think that really respecting young people enough to give them that choice, uh, along with the fact that addictive products, less so I'd say in, in media, but certainly in social media, are being sold to kids. Like addiction is a very interesting behavioral health problem in that people literally sell it for profit. No one sells depression, no one sells trauma. People literally sell addictive products and then make more money when it happens to you. And I think that helping young people understand that is also critical so that they can know, you know, is this an industry that I want to support? Look at what these big companies are doing, how they are either directly or obliquely marketing to me as a teenager, where it might be illegal even to say to purchase these products, and then decide, is this what I want to support to solve my problem, to have fun, et cetera. I like that. And I've seen your presentation where you have talk about the circle of concern and the circle of influence. So I think Lisa would be in the uh, circle of influence. How should she use that in the same way? Yeah, yeah. Well, so that that was taken, you know, lifted straight out of Stephen Covey, and I think that I, I think that I credited him in the in the presentation for that. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is a great book. Um, but whatever your the idea behind it is that we've got this very large circle of concern, and inside of it, a small a smaller circle of influence, but we can actually impact and we waste our energy when we are worrying or putting that energy towards something that we can't actually influence. And so as a preventionist, you've actually got a pretty large platform. You're probably attached to a drug-free community coalition or some other entity that gives you funding, gives you a platform, maybe the ability to reach into schools and influence curriculum. There's, there's, there's a lot of different things that you can do, but making sure that the messaging gets out there about the truth about these things is critical. And then I tag on at the end, particularly right now, we are in the middle of a mental health crisis for youth. The Surgeon General released a 53-page advisory, I think it was in November of last year. The American Academy of Pediatrics and others declared a national emergency about this because of what's been going on generally, and then you layer COVID on top huge problem, it's going to flow downstream into addiction because when kids don't know how to deal with their mental health concerns, that's when they start using substances, developing eating disorders, self-harming, all of these really maladaptive coping strategies to deal with what they're carrying around. And so I'm on the board of the prevention agency where I live as well. And one of the initiatives uh, that we're pushing right now that's been a little bit different than your, in years past is teaching coping skills to kids because that's going even further upstream in the youth drug use prevention lane. And I think right now that's incredibly important if we wanna make progress. Um, I think that that's important, teaching coping skills, but I wonder, Aaron, uh, whether it's chicken of the egg or both, because uh, um, using drugs and especially high-potency THC can cause psychosis and mental health issues um, versus people who have um, whatever trauma or biological um, mental health need that, that results in addiction. So I think it goes um, both, both ways and I would hope, I would like to see more of the mental health workers and people who, and advocates um, start acknowledging the issue of drugs that, that play in that field. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's very common. I, I don't have the statistic off the top of my head, but substance use in uh, mental health populations, people who are struggling with that is very high. And you're exactly right that when you are using substances to cope on a regular basis, that creates its own 
whole host of problems, whether or not they're social problems or legal problems, health problems, financial problems. That's honestly the impetus eventually for change is when people get so uncomfortable with the negative consequences of their substance use that it starts to outweigh whatever benefit they feel like they're getting from it. That's that, that pivot point where they're ready for change. But it's absolutely essential that we don't put drug use, alcohol use in a silo anymore. Uh, it's been that way for many years. We're starting to, to break down some of the regulatory statutes as well as even just how we look at it in medicine. But uh, it, it is absolutely linked. They're not separate issues. Right. I, I really would like to see people who are talking about suicide and mental health also be alerted and aware of the association of THC. We, we did a study in our emergency department. We looked at all the, the, the drug tests that we do. Um, and fifty percent of all of them were positive for THC. Um, I live in in San Diego, so seventy six percent of those were positive for methamphetamines. So we we also have a, a big methamphetamine wow. problem. But um, yeah. but um, you know, cannabis induced psychosis is is a, a real and serious um, illness, and I see that getting a pass. Oh yeah, I mean it's I any time that I speak on cannabis, I always bring. CHS up, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, and I bring up cannabinoid-induced psychosis because these are things as an emergency department physician that I know you're very familiar with. And you recognize it's not everybody who uses these products, obviously, but it's more than a small percentage. And one of the lessons that we've learned, I think, from COVID is that a very small percentage of a very large number is still a really large number of people, say, for example, who are dying from this disease. And the same thing goes true for marijuana. When you raise the number of people who are using marijuana, cannabis-based products, even if it's only a smaller percentage who has this sort of psychotic break, it's already a very significant amount of people, and it's only going to grow as it's continued to be normalized and popularized. Yeah. And and I and I again I don't know what how small the percentage is. Again, it's in my world, it's like a lot. Um, but I, I realize that I see, you know, the, the, you know, the large tip of the iceberg of people who have problems. Um, talk to us about the new THC um, products, the O-acetate, Delta-8. You know, I went to um, uh, the mall in Miami, and right in the middle uh, of the mall was a cart, and they were openly selling Delta-8, which should be federally illegal, but, um, and it's touted as a, a health product. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been, it's very interesting how the, there's almost been like a, a cannabis rebrand, even again, using the word cannabis instead of marijuana, when marijuana refers to a specific type of cannabis plant. I think it's got some old trappings from like the 60s and 70s attached to it. And so to broaden the customer base, they're trying to shift away. Uh, but it has, even though as it's gotten more and more potent and we're seeing more and more of these deleterious effects, somehow it's, it's been in a really shrewd marketing job. Like Don Draper would be very proud that somehow while it's gotten more dangerous, the public has year after year seen it as less and less risky. And actually, and again, paradoxically, Delta-8 and then THCO acetate, two of these newer products are even riskier in many ways than uh, base THC, if only because it's a synthetic product that has been untested. So what, what I mean by synthetic and how why it's being sold in gas stations and malls is that it's a, it's a hemp-derived product. So you start with CBD, you start with cannabidiol, and then through a very, a, a very chem a chemical process involving toxic chemicals, you then convert that into something different. And uh, Delta-8 THC is, uh, that one is uh, tends to be seen as less psychoactive, about 50 to 75% is psychoactive as traditional THC, which is Delta-9, but THCO acetate, which is you kind of take that CBD to Delta-8 conversion another step, that one is rumored to be three times as strong as THC, but because it's derived from hemp, it's being sold, even though you can make some legal arguments that they shouldn't be allowed to do this. In many states right now, you can buy it in the middle of the mall. You can buy it at a gas station and there's zero uh, required lab testing, quality control standards. We really have no idea if anything's contaminated, what's in there. It's almost more of a designer drug than it is uh, anything related to cannabis, in my opinion. It really seems that our country is very behind in consumer protection for all these things that are popping everywhere. 
Yeah, I mean, particularly the ones that we are creating uh, legal avenues to purchase. It kind of seems like if if you're if you're going to try to regulate cannabinoids, at least in states that say have uh, recreational marijuana programs like mine does here in Illinois, it seems like a tremendous loophole that you're just letting people with Delta Eight and THCO go bonkers, you know, yeah. go bananas and, without any. And by the way, those those products do not come up positive on a drug, a standard drug screen like that, that we would get in an emergency department. So, you know, your provider wouldn't even know that you're taking it. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, that's the way a lot of these designer drugs work, whether or not it's around opioids or hallucinogens, or again, these synthetic derivatives of naturally, you know, it, it all circumvents the common ways that we have of testing and means that the workplace is less safe. And you are too, honestly. Yeah. So uh, you're a psychologist treating patients. Um, would these, you know, there's a whole movement of using psychedelics to help people in treatment. Is that something you or your colleagues use? Really, really important question. Um, so, so this bears a lot of similarities to what's going on with cannabinoids in that there's, it's not that there aren't clinical applications and for psychedelics, yes, there absolutely are. However, there is a big difference and any of the folks from Johns Hopkins who you hear talk about, the, the people who are doing this work will say, we are using these in very controlled situations where people go to therapy ahead of time. They have the experience in a controlled setting. They have what's called an integration session afterwards. They do it again. They have another integration session. It's not just like dropping acid with your friends. You know, it's a very different thing. But well, seriously though, because what this has led to is this groundswell of people being like, we should legalize this so that we can all self-medicate. I, I like, I, I'm laughing because it's not the only thing that we've seen this with, right? Like we've seen that um, babies with a certain rare, rare seizure disorder called Dravet syndrome um, can get pure CBD oil and get better from their seizure. And somehow the public translated it um, even into law that you know, marijuana can be used, you know, for seizures. It's like, no, that's the opposite effect. <laughs> marijuana makes seizures worse. Babies are not smoking dope. It's the CBD, you know, specifically for this one rare disease. And yet, and then the same thing is happening with psychedelics. So like you're saying, that may be helpful in a certain controlled setting, but yet everywhere on the internet, you'll find like, you know, buying magic mushrooms to help with any ailment. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's seen, I think also as like a silver bullet, like a quick fix, yeah. which is always very, uh, very appealing. So to give you an example, right, there's, there's these stories of using psychedelics like MDMA, psilocybin, et cetera, to quote unquote cure PTSD which I, I'm, I'm sure there, there is some utility to this because it is being studied in controlled settings and there is some promising results. However, as a psychologist, where I spent three years training in the VA, I, I literally treat people for PTSD most days out of the week. There, there are a lot of processes that go on surrounding traumatic stress and what causes the cycle to, to continue, beliefs to stick around that are causing people to be fearful and mistrustful, angry, et cetera, that simply, you know, having an experience with a psychedelic isn't necessarily going to just fix on its own. It might do that for some people, but even in the context of psychedelic assisted therapy, that's not what's going on. It's a component of the larger treatment. And so I think that there's this myth of convenience, of immediacy, this desire for a quick fix, that when people hear about something, they're incredibly excited about it, and they want to just lean all the way into it. And the, the, the good news is that there is utility there, but it's a lot more nuanced than I think right now the public and the media gives it credit for. Yeah. So um, you're an addiction psychologist. Explain to us what's the difference between an addiction psychologist and addiction psychiatrist. Oh, I don't have an MD. <laughs> I mean, that's that's that's, that's but, the big one. But so. is there is it, okay? So you have a PhD instead yes. of an MD, still you know, respective degree, lots of studying and sweat to going into that. But but is your practice and approach to an addiction uh, client different? Well, I think I think it very much depends on uh, who you're working with on the psych on the psychiatrist side of things, in addiction psychiatry. As an addiction psychologist, I did go through a PhD program. So I, I spent a lot of time 
uh, on the research side of the tracks, on the study side of the tracks, but then a lot on the therapy side of the tracks. And that's really, when you think about psychology and psychiatry, the, the biggest difference in skill set is the thousands of hours, literally, that we spend in training before we get licensed as a psychologist to provide therapeutic services. And uh, you know, the, the training that we get around medicine is uh, slim to none because we don't prescribe it. And oftentimes for psychiatry, it's the opposite where they have an incredibly in-depth knowledge about the body, uh, the mind, medications, but they haven't done therapy practicums. They haven't done therapeutic internships. The, the therapy side uh, isn't part of their training. And that's why on ideal teams, you have both. You have psychologists and psychiatrists. Interesting. So. Take, take us through, let's say I referred you a patient who has uh, addiction. What, what, what do you do? What's you, what do you, I'm sure you start with an assessment and then um, you recommend medications. Do you work with them? How long is therapy? Um, is it forever? Is it a short time? Yeah. Well, so, so yes, you always start with an assessment uh, because if you don't ask questions holistically uh, in terms of someone's psychiatric history, their medical history, uh, their, their, uh, their social history. There's, there's so many different components that are important at times for treating any psychological or psychiatric disorder, much less addiction, which has its fingers in a lot of different parts of someone's life. And so a lot of times from the assessment, there will be some medications I'd like them to talk to a physician about to see whether or not it's a good idea for them. There might be someone who really needs to meet with a pain management specialist. There might be you know, any number of different things to really treat the whole person uh, because I personally, and I think this is a pretty well accepted view at this point, but I define addiction as a biopsychosocial problem. There's a biological side, there's a psychological side, and there's a social side. And if you don't, yeah, and if you don't address all three concurrently at the same time, any one of them can pull you back. And that's part of why if from the assessment, it seems like really working with me one-on-one -on -one isn't going to get them where they need to go because either their impulse control around substances is just not there right now, or they're in an environment that's not supportive for their recovery. We might need to talk about higher levels of care, like a rehab, day rehab programs where they go home at night or residential programs where they go away for a month and build some skills. So that's, that's the first step is really defining the problem and then working with someone to figure out okay, what, what comes next and where do I fit into their journey? And then from there, without you know, getting too far into the weeds, it's really about getting at each of those three areas, the biological with uh, the cravings and the withdrawal, the actual act of taking the substance, the psychological, the habits that people get into, and then critically, how they're probably using it to cope with the stressors in their life, and then coming up with, with uh, better offers for that. How are you going to actually help someone solve that problem in a different way? And then socially, where someone's either burned bridges with their support network or surrounded themselves with a lot of people who support and give a permission structure, if not outright enable their behavior, um, that too. So you try to lift all three at the same time, and that's what treatment is in a nutshell. And the length of treatment? Well, I mean, that really depends. I mean, so I... I I again, I view I view addiction as a chronic illness in a way that's that's relap relapsing and remitting. I, I hesitate to use the word illness as well because I think that can be stigmatizing at times. But it's something you do, particularly if you've developed a chemical dependence where your body asks for it. There are neurological pathways. There's things that have gone on in your brain that have changed, and they don't go back. And it means that if you completely, for, like, even if you get your addiction under control to the point where things are completely fine for a long period of time, it may not stay that way. And you've, you've just got to monitor it, monitor it like any other chronic condition. But in terms of the acute phase, when you're really trying to get out of the woods, if, if someone takes well to treatment, I mean, I, I think you can get someone into a pretty good place within three to six months. But depending on what they're dealing with, you know, keep, keeping them on that positive track can sometimes uh, require much longer periods of maintenance and work. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting, three to six months, it takes a while. Like you didn't get to this place in your brain overnight. It, it's gonna take a while for you to, I, I call it getting your brain back, um, um, you know, to where you're not dependent on that. 
you know, Senator Patrick Kennedy, I don't know if you heard it, he says, you know, encouraged, really spoke to me as a physician, like getting a checkup from the neck up. Like we always check how you're doing, you know, all your symptoms, but how are, how are you doing mental health wise? How is your, you've had addiction in the past, how are you doing now? Um, to mm -hmm. just even ask that question. I think uh, many uh, non-psychologists and psychiatrists don't, don't ask that. Oh, right. Yeah. This, so uh, another topic that I speak on uh, very frequently yeah. is that of mental hygiene, in, yeah. which is a term a lot of people haven't heard of, but we, you know, we brush our teeth all the time so that we don't get cavities and we wash our bodies so that we don't smell or de you know, develop abscesses or, or whatnot. Um, but a lot of times people just figure your mind and your stress and your emotional life is you just cram it all down and you, you know, burrow, you know, and you just deal with it. But that's not that's not how that system of your body works either. And so really teaching people the skills they need in order to deal with the stressors that they're facing, whether or even just individual emotional events like loneliness, feeling uh, low self-esteem, anger, there, there are tools that you can learn to help you navigate these experiences in ways that are healthy. Uh, and less, can you, at the very can least, you give us an concerned. example? What's a good mental health hygiene tip? <laughs> well, well, so I guess at the at the most basic level, what you want to try to do, and I'm I'm borrowing. There was a great journal article that came out last year uh, by uh, Tremblay et al. I'm happy to to provide a link to the abstract if you want to put it on the show notes. That, that really outlines this. That really the, the point of mental hygiene is to decrease activity in the default no uh, mode network, which is the part is the system in your brain that gets activated when you ruminate and when you are feeling depressed, when you're feeling anxious, that lights up. And so if you can lower the activation in that part of the brain, you do tend to feel a lot better. And there's a number of different ways that you can do this that are supported by research and fMRI studies. These things include cognitive behavioral interventions. Uh, meditation is a big one. Uh, uh, spending time in nature, prayer, positive psychology interventions have also been shown to decrease that sort of activity. And so the idea of mental hygiene is that you spend 10 minutes a day doing one of these truly restorative activities, because there's a lot of things that people do that they feel is like, quote unquote, blowing off steam. And it might be fun, but it's not actually relaxing or restorative. So you mean and like exercise? Oh, exercise is great for you too. Um, that one, may, maybe not uh, that particular part of the brain, but certainly in terms of mental health impact, exercise is a great idea. But I mean, things like uh, if you're saying going out and partying with friends or playing, uh, you know, an exciting or violent video game or, you know, something along those, or even like going out and, uh, you know, getting lunch out or something like that and, you know, eating some food that makes you feel good. It makes you feel good, but it doesn't necessarily serve this other purpose in terms of deactivating that part of your brain. Interesting. All right. Yeah, I will take that link and, and share it with our with our listeners. Aaron, tell us about uh, Kratom. Uh, there are people who are using Kratom to treat their opiate use disorder. They're self-medicating and it works for them um, because it's an opioid and they're substituting their opioids that they uh, used to using um, uh, and it works on the same receptors. Are you seeing yeah. that in your practice? So I'm not personally seeing that as much in my own practice, but we are seeing a lot more about it uh, in the news and case reports that are published in medical journals and in poison control calls. And the, the reason for this is much like some of the other products we've talked about today, despite it, it truly being active on opioid receptors, it's not regulated in any federal way at this point. It's kind of piecemeal state by state. And it's another one of these plant-based products that someone can go and self-medicate with, uh, yet it, it being an opioid. And so it, it's, it's something where there is some utility to the plant. It's absolutely possible that you could use it uh, and its active chemical to, to, to provide good and to help in a medicinal way. However, that's very different than how it's being rolled out right now, where you're just buying it off the shelf, uh, like we talked about before with uh, Delta 8 from gas stations and malls and specialty herbal shops. Uh, it, it's not the right way to use the chemical. Yeah, and it's always probably better for people not to treat themselves, right, for the reason that you said that um, first of all, there's no controls. There have been outbreaks of salmonella poisoning in people who died who were using Kratom. 
Um, and dosing is different. So um, Kratom has, you know, works on the opioid receptors, but it also can be a stimulant depending on how much you're taking. And I'd rather have people who have a opioid use disorder take Suboxone or a different type of medication-assisted treatment rather than an unregulated chemical. Right. I, whenever you go off the reservation on a, in a research sense, I mean, it's always someone's personal choice if they want to try something like that. But mm -hmm. as some, you know, as a scholar practitioner myself and someone who believes very much in the scientific method, and I also have a lot of faith in our institutions in this country in terms of the FDA going through the process that we do so that we really validate that medications do what they are supposed to do and are dosed properly and also don't have really adverse side effects that we're not aware of, that we, we trust in that process. And I know that with my patients, I, I always angle them towards those sorts of solutions because they are actually solutions for a large number of people when they're deployed correctly. It's just a matter of uh, getting them connected to those right resources as opposed to just kind of going rogue and trying some of these more shots in the dark that maybe it works, but maybe it doesn't, and maybe it actually ends up hurting you. Yeah. And uh, switching on the opioids uh, from, from Kratom, the one that's really killing Americans now is fentanyl. And well, um, Families Against Fentanyl just recently released statistics um, that they're, in the past two years, the number of uh, teenagers who've died of fentanyl has gone up threefold. The number of black teenagers have gone up fivefold. Um, from illicit fentanyl, really staggering um, uh, data and how it's you know it's affecting the entire population. It's the number one killer more than COVID, ages eighteen to to, to forty five. And um, what's your take on the, on that that problem? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's going to be very similar to to everybody else's, which is that it's a huge huge problem. Actually, the a day or two before we're recording this podcast, there was a, an article published in the Lancet on this exact issue saying that the overdose, uh, the overdose epidemic, the opioid epidemic is going to get a lot worse unless we see some very prompt changes um, uh, immediately. And over COVID, we've had this 30% increase in overdose deaths. A lot of public health initiatives uh, had to be discontinued. They haven't picked back up in the way that they used to. And as you were saying, fentanyl is driving this because it is so potent and because it's so deadly and so easy to make mistakes. And now it's being mixed into so many different things. It's never been, as far as I'm aware, a more a deadlier time, at least on a national level, aside from like many outbreaks of deaths and tainted product here and there. Um, it's never been a more dangerous time to be using drugs off the street than it is right now. So you you published a, a commentary in Newsweek magazine about solutions. What what is your take on solutions to the crisis? Yeah, well, so my my take on this is that if you look at the way things are going, what we've done so far is necessary but not sufficient, and we really have to take a hard look at what's been going on because even before COVID hit, we were still seeing an increase in overdose deaths in every year except for one. There was a quick a little dip, but then it went back up again and certainly not a steep decrease, not like we've really uh, figured this out in a way that's sustainable. And just like we were talking about earlier in the show, there's, there's no silver bullet for this. But what I do think we need to think about is how to go further upstream than we are right now and to see overdose as the end of a very long, literally years and years and years long process of a problem taking hold. Because the point at which someone either initiate, when they initiate their drug use or their opioid use to the point that they overdose for many is actually a fairly long time. And in the prevention field, we call that secondary prevention not primary prevention before someone stopped, uh, started using in the first place, but secondary prevention. When someone started down the path, like the, the, the problem, uh, to, to use that word again, the disease is already taken hold, but you're preventing it from getting worse. You're preventing it from progressing. And the thing about addiction is that it grows in secret. People don't talk about it. It's highly stigmatized. And so folks are getting started either, and I outlined two different paths in that, in that op-ed, one is they're prescribed an opioid uh, legitimately for a, a real pain-related problem. And then 
they go through a process where one thing leads to another and uh, they, they end up getting cut off, going to the street, going towards cheaper products because pills, generally speaking, are more expensive than heroin uh, because heroin is less safe and oftentimes cut with things like fentanyl. Or they're going down the more, uh, what we'll call it adolescent uh, addiction track where they start the substances that they don't view as risky, things like vaping, THC products, uh, alcohol, things like that, uh, and, and then gradually progressing their way forward towards, uh, towards an opioid overdose by identifying as someone who copes by using substances, hanging out with people who get high for fun, seeing themselves as a drug user and someone who breaks the law. All of these shifts in their psychology and behavior give them permission to use that word again to use quote unquote harder and harder substances, which eventually gets them to, to, to overdose. Not all of them, of course, but that's the pipeline. So where we are right now is we are reaping what we've sown as a society. There were so many years of opioid prescribing. There's been so much of, of uh, indoctrinating kids into this drug culture of, for which cannabis and marijuana play a huge part that the people who are dying right now, this was set into motion five, 10 years ago. And so when we think about the next crop, we've got to think further up the line, one, but then we also have to treat the people who are in that pipeline so they don't get to that terminal result. It's uh, okay. So I'm thinking about what you're saying and, and, and where I agree in the general premise. Um, I think, number one, the, the opioid prescription uh, epidemic is, is over. And I, I, I like to feel mm -hmm. like I contributed to that end. Uh, probably the beginning of it as well. Um, so I, I don't know if if so many of the people we're seeing dying now, are, um, some of them are, but but are primarily affected by the opioid prescribing because we've 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 solved that problem. That was like a twenty year uh, problem with a beginning uh, and an end. I, I I also see kids who are do not have a substance use disorder who die from fentanyl because it's so potent. They experiment one time and that's their last time because mm -hmm. they were poisoned. Um, so while years ago experimenting of, in, with drugs is you know an experiment, now it could be a lethal um, in, endeavor. So I think my approach to the drug problem is more like a, approach to infectious disease. You know, if we treated overdoses and drugs, like we treat COVID, like we treat gonorrhea and chlamydia and syphilis, I always say I'm jealous of infectious diseases. I think that that would be the rational um, approach. And so prevention is key, just like the vaccine is key, you know, preventing people getting there. Um, and treatment's important, like getting a blood transfusion. You need to have treat people, but you have to also stop the source of bleeding, you know, doing mm -hmm. a trauma uh, analogy. And while I think we can be united in our, in our fervor to stopping the issue of overdoses, I don't know that we're um, together in the methodology of getting there. And, and that's going to hurt us because if we mm -hmm. don't emphasize prevention, primary and secondary, like you said, we're just creating more of a pipeline. That's what I see us doing as a country. We are creating a pipeline of more people getting in trouble for drugs. And we're thinking that we're going to solve it you know, on the later end with harm reduction mm -hmm. and treatment, which is important. I'm not dismissing that. But you're just going to create more and more if you don't go, like you say, upstream. And the biggest yeah. upstream is preventing these um, precursors and drugs getting into our country in the first place. And you're going to talk to Sam Quinones, who's been on this show, and he'll yeah, and he'll talk about that, how supply matters. So I think that that's, that's really key. Well, all, you know, prevention, treatment, recovery, harm reduction is all important. Um, if we really want to prevent a new generation of people getting addicted, we put a lot more emphasis in, in prevention because that's what happened with the opioid prescribing epidemic. We ended that by prescribing less. We didn't end that by doing more Suboxone. Completely agree. And yeah, that was actually, I think the AMA, American Medical Association, published mm -hmm. a, a report on this showing how Yes, the prescriptions have gone down drastically. Like the, the prescribing problem now is solved, but the overdoses are still happening. And that's right. like you were saying, this example of the pipeline where, I, I mean, I can even speak from my own experience where it's not rare at all for someone to come to me saying, I need help getting off these opioids. How do I do it? And 
and I help them do it. But I know that for every person who finds their way to me, there's a lot of others who don't and who are struggling with this question or struggling with, you know, they, they've got this chemical dependency, but their, their, their physician isn't working with them on it. I mean, I could give you just a lot of anecdotes and stories about it. But yes, I think on the primary prevention and from the physician side, yes, I think that that, that, that problem has been by and large solved. But now the question is, all right, what do we do about these people in the middle? And how do we make sure that we don't just focus on the very beginning and on the very end? And I think that, that when we talk about what is the pivot that we need to make in order to actually start to see deaths go down, I think we need to get to that middle part, that pipeline, and try to disrupt the progression and not just try to catch them when their substance use disorder has progressed to the point where their life has fallen apart. Um, I think we can go, go earlier. Yeah. And with that, what is your final advice to, to Lisa in, in her work in prevention? Oh man, uh, just keep, keep your head up, <laughs> you know, keep, <laughs> keep your head up and keep doing it. Um, you know, prevention, oh my goodness, it is one of the most noblest things you could do in my opinion, and is also one of the most thankless because it is, it's something where, like we've been talking about today, you're planting seeds that aren't gonna grow for years. And that's part of why it's so hard also to get funding in today's political system where you want to like point to immediate results. But sometimes you really have to invest in something that takes years and years and years to grow. And folks in the prevention world like do so much with so little and make such a big difference. And that's part of why I think this year there was the greatest amount of funding sent to DFC groups, drug-free uh, coalitions, community groups across the country. Um, was because of the amazing work that they're doing and the data they're collecting showing how they make a difference in their communities. So to anyone in prevention who's listening to this podcast, thank you for what you're doing. You are appreciated and you are making a difference. Uh, it's, it's so important that we keep up the work because that is what's eventually going to get us out of this. It, it just takes time. And I want to echo that. That was a great, great advice. And I want to thank you, Lisa Bridges, for being a pillar in the San Diego prevention community with Say San Diego. We need your voice and protection of youth now more than ever. And you have a hard job. And yet every time I see you, you have the nicest, warmest, infectious smile that I very much enjoy. And to you, um, Dr. Aaron Weiner, thank you so much for enlightening our listeners with high truths. And I wish you the best of luck as your role of the president of the Society of Addiction Psychology. Um, cherish your time there. It goes by really quickly. Um, and uh, I hope we keep in touch. And I thank you for your advocacy and treatment. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative, striving to dispel misconceptions about marijuana so citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. <laughs>